Hello, Rebels. You're listening to a free audio-only recording of my show, Rebel Roundup. Now, if you like listening to this podcast, then you would love watching it. But in order to watch, you need to be a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's what we call our long-format TV-style shows here on The Rebel. Subscribers get access to watching my weekly show, as well as other great TV-style shows, too. It's only $8 a month to subscribe, or you can subscribe annually and get two months free. And just for podcast listeners, you can also save an extra 10% on a new premium membership by using the coupon code PODCAST when you subscribe. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com to become a member. And please leave a five-star review on this podcast and subscribe in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Those reviews are a great way to support Rebel News without spending a dime. And now, enjoy this free audio-only version of my show. Welcome to Rebel Roundup, ladies and gentlemen, and the rest of you, in which we look back at some of the very best commentaries of the week by your favorite Rebels. I'm your host, David Menzies. Well, our chief videographer, Mocha Bezergen, went to Montreal last weekend, and thanks to clashes between pro-Israel and pro-Hamas demonstrators, this Canadian city looked like a municipality somewhere in the Middle East. It was shameful and disturbing, and Mocha who himself was physically assaulted, shall have plenty of details to share. This just in, the media party is so emboldened these days on the propaganda front that it doesn't even care about openly declaring its bias, at least when it comes to the latest violence occurring in the Middle East. Ezra Levent will join me to talk about an open letter making the rounds in which Canadian journalists proclaim that they are choosing the side of Hamas rather than Israel when it comes to their news coverage. And letters, we get your letters, we get them every minute of every day, and you had plenty to say about the protesting double standards we witnessed in Toronto last weekend, namely anti-lockdown protesters who want the Canadian economy to open up so that Canadians can get back to work. Well, they're banned from Nathan Phillips Square. But if one is pro-Hamas and spouting hate speech, well, Mayor John Tory, he'll roll out the red carpet for those sort of people. Those are your Rebels. Now let's round them up. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Chief Videographer at Rebel News. My name is Mokha Bezirgan. I was in Montreal this last weekend where crazy things happened. There were two major protests. One was a pro-Palestine protest 
and the other one was pro-Israel protest. The pro-Palestinian protest took place on Saturday, same square where the very next day a pro-Israeli protest took place. And this time pro-Palestinian counter-protesters showed up and things got a little ugly. The streets were filled with tear gas and pepper spray. I got punched in the face. Pedestrians who had nothing to do with the protest got affected. Couple people got arrested. Traffic was halted. Take a look at this crazy footage. Officer here. Yeah. I'm here. I'm recording. He punched me. Well, what? I, can't, I can't really see it. Don't lie, brother. I saw. Look. Yeah, he was protecting himself. I saw him. I, I'm not rebel. He's bro. not protecting. I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. Yes, they came see. with a knife. They're so, there so, with so. knives. Look, they came here. with knives. You know what is different with Jews and Arabs? Arabs, they have here, knives. Sir. They're right, dirty. Sir, not here to fight, bro. That's him right here running. Yes, and then he comes up to me and then punches me. Where is he? That's not him. That's not even him. Bro, don't lie. He punched me in the face. Sir. Wow, I know that footage might look like it was shot somewhere in the Middle East, but that was indeed the scene last weekend in Montreal when pro-Hamas and pro-Israel supporters clashed, throwing fists and projectiles as the Montreal police lobbed tear gas canisters. It was a shameful and disturbing scene. And what was the deal with the thug who sucker punched our chief videographer? And that would be Mocha. Well, joining me now is the target of the attack, Mocha Bezrigan himself. So Mocha, you don't have a dog in this race. I'm talking about the ongoing tensions uh, between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government. You're just in Montreal playing witness as a journalist to the protests that were occurring. Mm -hmm. What was the motivation for you getting sucker punched in the first place? Well, that's what I'm trying to find an answer to. <laughs> after the punch, I went after the attacker and I asked him, why did you punch me? Why did you punch me? And um, it was more of a like, to me, it was like some, you know, some kid came in and I said, na, 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 and I ran away. That was, I was under shock of that because I'm like, what just happened and why did it happen? I'm trying to make sense of it. And he was just, he wouldn't um, look me in the eye. He would keep walking away. Um, after and, and he started denying that it was him, mm. his friends would try to push me away. So because I can't communicate with him, I escalated to the people who were basically um, kind of organizing the protest, um, yeah. um, like showing the way where to go, what to do. S um, I said, hey, are you guys in a position of authority? Um, something like, you know, somebody punched me and they just pushed me around. I mean, sorry, pushed me away from them. Yeah. So, um, you know, nobody is um, helping me. So I went to the police this time. Luckily, we were passing through a police officer. And I said, officer, this person with the, this hat punched me. And um, he called him over and um, he watched the video. In my video, it's not clear who punched me. So the police said, I can't really see. Plus... Um, the guy who punched me was like, oh, what? I didn't even, you know, said something in French. And his uh, lying friends, his low character friends, 
They said, oh, it was in self-defense. Yes. The other one said, oh, Arabs are playing dirty, they have knives. The other ones, you know, so they basically lied. And um, Well, Mocha, in their defense, it's so easy to mistake a cell phone for a knife. They almost mm -hmm. look identical. But, you know, while you're saying, Mocha, it reminds me of the old chestnut about um, the Watergate scandal. It wasn't so much the crime, it was the cover-up. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is almost as bad or even worse than the physical assault. It's that that individual and his friends start making these preposterous lies that you've mm -hmm. just uh, checked off. And um, what, what I don't like about this is that I, I don't know where you are politically in terms of the mm -hmm. conflict, and maybe it's not here nor there, but um, I'm about as pro-Israel as you can get. Mm -hmm. These were the pro-Israel mm -hmm. demonstrators. Mm -hmm. And it makes a mockery of why people are pro-Israel. I look at Israel as a nation, you know, an island in a sea of intolerance and hatred surrounded by countries that want to wipe them off the, the map. One of the reasons I love Israel is it is a democracy. It does have freedoms. And for them to act physically, not just to a, another protester, mm -hmm. but to someone who's a member of the media, that, that brings the very foundation of why I love Israel mm -hmm. into disrepute when I see somebody mm -hmm. acting in violence. Well, it's only these particular protesters. Yep. Um, they, to me, both sides were very acting like elementary children, trying to steal each other flags and <laughs> cheering for it. I, I asked myself, what am I doing here? And um, I went there as a um, third party, as a you know, with clear conscience to just report what's going to happen, what's whatever happens, and that's what I did. But I didn't expect. I did. I was more afraid of getting punched by a Palestinian protester than I was afraid of getting punched by an Israeli protester. It was, a, it was very unexpected for me, but it happened and um, it um, showed me that, you know, you never let your guard down. No, you're quite right. And <clears throat> the fact that the police were so lame, here's an actual real crime committed with video evidence, mm -hmm. for goodness sakes, Mocha. And it was kind of like, you know, um, more than a month ago when we were in Montreal covering uh, what began as a peaceful demonstrator, demonstration uh, against the curfew. And then it, uh, those blockheads from Antifa mm -hmm. showed up and started mm -hmm. smashing the, the windows mm -hmm. of small businesses, which was absolutely despicable. But um, we were in a dicey situation because the Antifa types, the black bloc types, uh, those um, anarchists that are in Montreal, they would like nothing more than to harm us. I'm absolutely sure mm -hmm. about it. Yet we can't go to the police either mm -hmm. because they despise us. Mm -hmm. it, it reminds me of the tagline from the movie um, Aliens versus Predator. Uh, no matter which side wins, we lose, <laughs> right? So that was kind of the, the dilemma mm -hmm. I, I think you were in because you didn't have a lot of friends on the ground. Yeah, I only had Yankee, which um, after the event we met up and um, he tried to arrange um, we, we looked for the guy and he tried to arrange an apology from him, but he was very uncooperative. Um, so I started yelling at him, you punched me, why did you punch yep. me? And um, everyone paid attention that time. And they forced me and him to come together to shake hands. But he, he kind of apologized, but it wasn't genuine. He was like, oh, you know, he's laughing, speaking in French, doesn't even know English probably, I don't know. Unbelievable. And um, so he, he was like, you know, if you didn't commit the crime, then why are you apologizing? If you're apologizing, then you did commit the crime, why are you lying? Yep. 
and they gaslighted me. They said, no, it, it's not even him. It's not even him. And, you know, I know who punched me. Of course I do. I saw it's on camera, multiple angles. Oh, well, I hope now, I hope that um, he will feel the, the, you know, the extent of the law, the power of the law in his bones all and the way. And if not the laws and the criminal law, Volker, because of the, the man we work for, Ezra Levent, who does not bend the knee, maybe this is a matter for the civil courts. Maybe there's going to be a lawsuit against this person because this cannot uh, be tolerated. This mm -hmm. cannot, uh, we can't turn a blind eye to this. Mm -hmm. um, one last question. In the bigger picture of things, and I think this is another example, um, you remember uh, two summers ago we were in Kingston, I had a bottle thrown off my mm -hmm. head by an Antifa type. Uh, other, myself, other reporters, we've all been the victims of physical assaults. And it's, what I'm trying to understand is the uh, entitlement of these people mm -hmm. that they think they can get physical. And I think it comes down to when you look at the left, there is a saying where they say, it's okay to punch a Nazi. Mm -hmm. And the definition of a Nazi isn't somebody hell-bent on world conquest and carrying out a genocide. Mm -hmm. A Nazi to them is someone who disagrees <laughs> with their opinion. How in the world, in a democracy, where there should be uh, you know, uh, free ideas uh, you know, uh, debated, where we should have the ability to say, you know, I, let's agree to disagree mm -hmm. without throwing fists. Mm -hmm. How did we get to this point, Mocha, where suddenly there are those who feel that if you have a different opinion than I do, mm -hmm. it's fair game. I'm going to punch you in the face. I don't know how we got here, but it's a very deluded mindset, mm. I think, to think that you can just punch people because they disagree with you. You can just imagine them as the Nazi or as whatever you hate. And um, people just need to calm, calm down and um, approach each individual as an individual and um, start, start conversations instead of throwing fists and punches. A hundred percent. Well, I'm glad you're relatively okay and uh, I know you're going back to Montreal. Mm -hmm. So please uh, always, uh, you know, be uh, <laughs> aware of your surroundings. Mm -hmm. Although I, I'm, I would have been in the same position. I never would have expected an attack mm -hmm. from that person. And speaking of that person, uh, check your mailbox in the days <laughs> and weeks ahead. You might be getting uh, some kind of lawyer's letter in the mail. You're not going to get away with that. You're not going to get away with punching an innocent person in the face uh, just for the egregious practice of journalism. And if the Montreal police aren't going to do anything either, that's okay. We have some excellent lawyers. Keep it here. More of Rebel Roundup to come right after this. Well, in any battle between a liberal democracy and a terrorist group or a dictatorship, I know whose side I'm on. That's why I rooted for Hong Kong against Communist China. While I still love little Taiwan, I'm not ethnically related to the Taiwanese or the Hong Kongese in any way. I just know the good guys from the bad guys. I feel the same way about Israel. I have a special connection and affection as a Jew, but I think... I would certainly like to think that even if I were not Jewish and even if I had never visited the place, I would still stand up for Israel against the Hamas 
terrorist group, an explicitly anti-Semitic organization that can best be understood as a modern reincarnation of the Nazi party. If you read their charter, you can see they explicitly want to kill not just Israelis, but Jews. They don't want to have some sort of rapprochement or new deal with Israel. They want to utterly destroy it and exterminate it. It is language reminiscent of Hitler's Mein Kampf. Um, that's my view, and I hate to see the violence and that war pop up here in Canada and some of the violent protests we saw throughout the country on the weekend. Of course, it's a minor point to note that police certainly didn't enforce anti-gathering lockdown laws, mask laws, social distancing laws against those folks. Meanwhile, they were locking down churches and arresting pastors. But one of the most interesting things that probably escaped much notice because it's behind the scenes is a an open letter to Canadian newsrooms on covering Israel-Palestine. And this has been signed by more than 1,500 reporters or those who want to be reporters. And just in the very title there, you know where they're coming from because the battle is between the Hamas terrorist group and Israel, but it's immediately being recast as a battle between Israel and Palestine. Let me just read a few lines from this open letter to you. The Middle East is complicated. We need to hear both sides. Everyone has a lot of emotions about this. These are just some of the excuses news editors have provided to Canadian journalists trying to cover the escalating violence against Palestinians. Oh, is that, is that what we're talking about? Is that the only violence to talk about? And it is, we have to lose that nuance, according to this letter, and we have to embrace the truth of one side, the Hamas side, that accuses Israel of, quote, ethnic cleansing. This letter goes on to demand that media in Canada be advocates for Hamas. And it's signed by reporters who work for the Globe and Mail, CTV, Global News, the Toronto Star, CBC, and many others. Well, there you have it, folks. The media party is so emboldened these days on the propaganda front that it doesn't even care about openly declaring its bias at least when it comes to the latest violence occurring in the Middle East. And so it is that there are no shades of gray regarding the conflict. It's all black and white with Israel in the role of the villain, given that it is supposedly pursuing ethnic cleansing, and with the Palestinians in the role of victims of genocide? Oh, come on, give me a break. But as the old chestnut goes, in war, truth is the first casualty. Yet now that we have taxpayer-funded reporters stating how they have no intention, absolutely, of telling the other side of the story, the question arises, why? And here to answer that query is Rebel News Commander Ezra Levant. Ezra, how did we get here? Yeah, I looked through <clears throat> this list, like you can actually find this list. It's a document that people can add their names to continuously. Uh, there are an enormous number of people from the CBC, the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, um, institutions like that, that uh, claim to be neutral, but these are reporters who are saying, I'm not neutral, Israel's the bad guy, they're doing ethnic cleansing. There was actually ethnic cleansing in Gaza, but it's probably not what these reporters, most of whom know nothing about the region, yeah. would say. And that ethnic cleansing came in the form 
of the forced evacuation of Jewish residents of Gaza. Yeah. The Gaza Strip is a very dense, um, I'll call it a municipality, that abuts Egypt. And it was overwhelmingly Muslim, but there were, I don't know, 1% of the population were Jews. And they were in agriculture and they had little towns there. It was very hard for Israel to protect them because they were constantly subject to terrorist attacks. And as an unrequited act of peacemaking, uh, Israel said, all right, we're going to actually remove the last Jews of Gaza. And the Jews said, no, we don't want to go. The Israeli army went into Gaza and forcibly removed every last Jew from their farms and greenhouses. Um, Hamas took over, smashed everything, and just instead of greenhouses, turned it into... So <laughs> there was a lot of things that happened wrong then. Um, it was wrong to think that this unilateral step would appease Hamas. Hamas is not a, a regular political organization that we would think of in the West that is looking for peace. Their constitution, their, it, it actually tracks the Nazi parties in some way. They explicitly call for the annihilation of Israel. They explicitly call for the killing of all Jews anywhere. So it's not just get the Jews out of Israel, we're happy. And so when Israel gave up this part of the Gaza Strip, actually yanked out all the remaining Jews, took out all of the soldiers. There's not a single Jew in Gaza, neither soldier nor resident. Israel at the time was very foolish to think this would somehow create peace in return. In fact, all it did was convince Hamas, oh, let's just keep doing more of whatever we were doing. So that's the only ethnic cleansing I can think of that's happened in the Gaza Strip, is those last Jews were removed. In fact, Avi Yamini, his uh, family member, uh, he's part of a large family. One of his family members lived in the Gaza Strip and was one of those Jews that was removed. He's got a very touching video about that on our, on our channel. So anyway, that's a little anecdote about ethnic cleansing. The only ethnic cleansing in Gaza is the Jews were cleansed out. But um, back to your question about the media. Uh, it's quite interesting to see these journalists out themselves, first of all, as know-nothings, but second of all, <laughs> as propagandists. Yeah. And the question is, how can they continue to work as news producers, editors, at places like the Globe and Mail and the CBC, once they've basically said, we will not tell the Israeli side of the story, we do not acknowledge that there's a terrorist war here, and we will state that Israel is an apartheid ethnic cleanser. How can people who sign that um, be allowed to continue in nonpartisan non jobs in a newspaper or media company? What I mean by that is, if you're an opinion columnist and you have a very strong opinion, okay, that's your job. But if your job is to be a neutral editor, producer, uh, presenter, you can't say that and then say, oh, just kidding, now pretend I'm neutral. But, but really, didn't it just prove what we already all knew about the media? And Ezra, I want to touch on that. The twas ever thus in the world of media, especially in the printed press. You had the op-ed section; that those were the opinions, the editorials, and then you had the front page, which was supposed to be unbiased, go, reaching out to both sides. You know, not having a horse in this race. I have seen in the last. I, I, I think it's been accelerated, indeed, in the last five years. The op-ed pages have drifted over to the front page. Mm -hmm. And in a way, Ezra, I think the signatories of that open letter, they've actually done us a favor. We've long accused them of being biased, of hiding their bias. 
now they're saying, you know what? Yeah, we are biased. Yeah. Here's the deal. Yeah, and you know, um, how did this happen? And this whole phenomenon of signing these open letters and signing these open lists, that feels fairly recent. I mean, I, I know it's happened in, in the past, but it's so much easier with online sharing documents. Yeah. People sign their names to things. Um, I'm reminded of a few months back when the National Post itself, purportedly one of the most conservative newspapers in Canada, had a similar online letter naming, shaming, and condemning their own lead columnist, Rex Murphy. And instead of firing everyone who signed that letter, the National Post, to their disgraceful discredit, actually had like a, a staff meeting struggle session where they all took turns denouncing Rex Murphy, who wasn't there, by the way. Yeah. He refused to dignify the, the whole presentation, but National Post Management hosted this town hall, they called it. So what started out as the madness of universities, well, if you're crazy when you're 20 and no one says, you're crazy, <laughs> and then if you're hired by, why would the National Post hire anyone from Crazy Town Ryerson or Crazy Town Carleton Journalism School? Like if you were liter if you, you know, there's a saying in politics, personnel is policy. Who you hire is a reflection of your mindset. Of course it is. Um, and if the National Post and these other organizations hire the kookiest, wokest, craziest, cancel culture, nut bar, left-wing radicals, why wouldn't they think that's going to slowly take over their own institutions? So the, the craziness from the campuses a decade ago are now the craziness in institutions today. Academia is completely gone. Media is largely gone, and shame on, and I'm mentioning the National Post, I, actually I don't even recall if I saw a National Post signatory on this latest list, I think right. they were told not to, based on the Rex Murphy struggle session, but um, that's everywhere. Now we, I mean, I, I think of our own place, we hire people here at Rebel News, and um, there are some positions at Rebel News that are not editorial, like there's an accounting position, there's a... Uh, there's tech side positions. And, and so there are some places where I, it doesn't actually matter at all what your editorial view is because you're, you're not doing that stuff. But really, if, if you're working at Rebel News, you should share the worldview of Rebel News. And what's incredible to me is that so-called conservative institutions, so-called conservative media, hired people who despise them, who hate them. If you're joining the National Post and you hate Rex Murphy, and you hate Conrad Black, why are you joining them? I know why, to change them. Yeah. And to think those guys are in their 70s and 80s, I'm in my 20s, I'm gonna extirpate them from National Post and turn it into the Toronto Star. That's what's going on. And you know, it, it is baffling. I would say today's National Post, to use the old GM ad tagline for Oldsmobile, this ain't your father's National Post. Yeah. But one last exit question, uh, Ezra. In the big picture, we go back to 1948, the establishment of Israel. If you were a classical liberal, this was a great thing. Yeah. This, this was renowned. It was a democracy. It was an island of tolerance in a sea of, uh, you know, broiling hatred. And how did the left? change its view that, uh, you know, this, uh, you, know, you know, just three years after the end of the Holocaust, that Israel was something to, um, it, it was something that was revolting to them. And you look at, and when I say that, Ezra, I look at some of the signage um, in London, Ontario, for goodness sakes, the pro-Hamas demonstrators, some of them had 
swastikas yeah. displaying that in, in public, yeah. projecting that on Israel. I can't think of anything more offensive than that. Yeah. How do we get from there to here? Yeah, well, just one quick thing. I haven't seen the left-wing anti-hate groups in this country go after swastikas being flown oh, no. from the, the pro-Hamas types. They, they keep on saying that the greatest threat to Jews is from the far right. Yeah. Okay, could be. Uh, I haven't seen evidence of that. I suppose <laughs> I'm keeping an open mind. But here you have actual people parading through the streets of Canada with Nazi flags, yep. swastikas, and the anti-hate groups. Well, that's our narrative is it's old white guys who are doing that, not Muslim migrants. Um, but um, as to Israel, in, in 1948, there was a few things there. I think it was started sort of in a socialist way. First of all, I think it was in the shadow of the Holocaust. There was sort of an international um, consensus that something had to be done about the Jews. This is the Jewish homeland. They were just uh, six million killed in, German, in, in Europe. This is perhaps a solution. And remember, most of the world's, I mean, the, the Soviet Union, America, the, the main allies had just finished fighting Hitler and had seen the true evil. evil. So the memory of the Holocaust was fresher. It wasn't denied or trivialized it is today. Secondly, Israel was a socialist enterprise. Um, the concept sure. of a kibbutz was actually a kind of voluntary communism. People would live communally. And I think that even the Soviet side, the leftist side said, oh, well, maybe this Jewish homeland will be friendly to socialism. Mm -hmm. And indeed it was for a while. And finally, I think there's something in Western minds that sympathizes with underdogs. Yeah. And of course, the Jews had just been bloodied and, and decimated by the Holocaust. And Israel was a small, weak country surrounded by big Arab countries. So even in the West, people were sympathetic with Israel. It survived its Independence Day War. It survived the War of 1956. But that love or that honeymoon with Israel only lasted two decades. Yeah. Because in 1967, when five or six Arab armies were preparing to attack it, Israel made a preemptive strike knocked out various air forces in the regions, had some successful tank battles, and suddenly the underdog became the top dog. Mm. And Israel conquered the Sinai. And all of a sudden, this little country that was being picked on, picked on, picked on, it showed the world it could not only defend itself, but it knocked out, sort of in a David and Goliath biblical way, all these huge Arab armies. And so I think the world, the liberals of the world, the leftist progressives of the world said, hmm, Israel's not the underdog anymore. Now they're the bully, even though there's still <laughs> one country surrounded by dozens of Arab countries, a small country surrounded by hundreds of millions of Arabs and Muslims. And so I think that the, the West said, you're no longer the underdog. We like Jews when they're bent and bleeding. You wow. were too victorious. We're gonna switch our allegiances to your enemies now. And it's the same mental problem that throughout the Cold War, there was this large segment of the progressive left that hated the West and rooted for the Soviets. You yeah. saw that, I remember Knowlton Nash of the CBC way back in the day, pure pro, like always had the Soviet uh, pundits on. And I thought, what is he doing? The free speech that Knowlton Nash enjoys in Canada yeah. is because of our freedom. And he would always have, I forget the name of the guy, he would always have some well-spoken, uh, you know, fluent in English Soviet spin doctor. And I think you're treating this propaganda liar as a truth teller. Why, why, why? Because he hated the West. He wanted to undo the West. 
And first it was supporting the Soviets, then it was supporting the jihadists. I mean, there is a part of the left that will always take the enemy's side against ourselves. Yeah. And Israel is a proxy for the West in that region. Anyhow, that's too long an answer to your question. But, but we have to stand by freedom and democracy. The same way I would feel if Taiwan were attacked by communist China, God forbid. That plucky little democracy outnumbered 10 to 1, 40 to 1. We have to stand with Taiwan. In Israel, I feel the same way. Plus, I have a personal connection. I'm, being, I'm Jewish, so I have a sympathy to Israel for that regards. But I, I think even if I weren't Jewish, just like I, I would root for the democracy of Taiwan, and it broke my heart when Hong Kong was conquered. That's how I feel towards Israel, too. 100%. Great analysis. Uh, Ezra, hard to believe there was a useful idiot working at CBC like Nathan <laughs> used to. And, you know, folks, there you got it. I mean, and to go back to this open letter signed by these journalists, I mean, I went to the Ryerson School of Journalism in the early 80s before Ryerson became this woke madhouse that it is today. And I can tell you, when it came to covering hard news you know there were three basic tenets basically you reached out for the other side of the story you strove for accuracy and you kept personal bias out of it it's just the five w's all these signatories of that open letter they would have failed j school back in the early 80s keep it here for more of rebel roundup right after this David Menzies for Rebel News here in Toronto. Well, folks, I'm just outside Nathan Phillips Square. You know, it's one of the no man's lands for anti-lockdown protesters to go to. But if you're a pro-Hamas protester, oh, well, Mayor Tory has the red carpet rolled out for the people here uh, advocating their special brand of anti-Semitism. And it's not just Nathan Phillips Square, folks. It is Bay Street itself. Uh, cars have illegally blocked um, uh, the uh, Bay Street here. We've seen cars going down the wrong way of a one-way street. We see cars revving their engines unnecessarily. You know, if the police came here, I would imagine they could fill their uh, quota for one month in one hour. But you know what? Not a cop to be seen here on Bay Street. And that's kind of funny, isn't it? Do you remember last summer how folks, we came down here to cover a protest, an illegal protest, by the way, because it broke 11 sections of the Trespass Act, and that was by the rank and file of a group called Afro-Indigenous Rising. They were breaking 11 sections of the Trespass Act, including starting fires, uh, camping overnight, urinating, defecating in the public square, and nothing was done for that about that for three whole weeks. But when we went down, to cover this disgrace, we were threatened with being charged with trespassing. Here, check it out. Yesterday, I went to Nathan Phelps Square. It has been commandeered uh, by a group that's uh, primarily composed of indigenous and black people. And evidently, we're not allowed to be on the square. It is like the Antifa uh, autonomous city in Seattle, but it's even amped up a little more because it's right where the seat of government is here in the municipality of Toronto, Toronto City Hall. We were told that by police that if we didn't exit the square, we would be arrested and charged with trespass. And yet they're turning a blind eye to the squatters. Not only that, folks, the city is aiding and, and enabling them by putting up porta potties for their comfort. 
So isn't that amazing? And again, to, to bring it back to the uh, question du jour, how is it that an anti-lockdown protest, a peaceful anti-lockdown protest, is not allowed on Nathan Phillips Square or Young Dundas Square, but this, I don't know what this protest is trying to say. Well, actually I do, but it would be impolite to uh, speak my mind. In any event, it is a double standard. And we're gonna try to find out why it is that people advocating for violence and death, because that's what's happening here, folks. People advocating for violence and death are completely tolerated and accommodated. And peaceful protesters that just want the economy to reopen, resume life as Canadians in Canada, circa 2019, why they are ticketed and uh, worse, even arrested and put in jail. So let's see what reaction we can get. Also, there really is no sense in me interviewing the pro-Hamas demonstrators here. These are the same people that congregate for the odious Al-Quds Day rally, typically in late June. They actually print off pictures of me uh, on uh, pages telling people not to speak with me. I swear I'm not making this up. Check out the video footage. How do you explain marching with the very people who despise you, who would want you killed? And of course, hey, hi guys. Sorry you're not playing. Oh, there, there you're, they're training them young. As I say in the marketing business, get them young, get them forever. Yeah, so they're not in a mood to talk to me. I wonder why, maybe it's because I'm not asking the kind of softball questions CBC reporters do. In any event, let's wander into the square and see if we can have authorities explain why there is such a glaring and odious and egregious double standard when it comes to freedom of protest. I'm just wondering, I'm trying to get clarity in terms of the rules of protesting, how anti-lockdown protests, so people sorry, waving Canadian... no comment at this time. You have no comment? No, no, sir. But, but why is there a double standard? Can you please answer me that, sir? I can't comment at this time. You can't sir. comment? Okay, he can't comment. <laughs> I'm just wondering, last summer we came here to cover the Afro-Indigenous rising illegal occupation of the square. We were threatened with being charged with trespassing by you and the police. I am wondering, why were we not allowed to practice journalism in the square, and yet this protest is occurring in the square right now where and some of these people are advocating very nasty things indeed why is that okay i just want to stop you right there unfortunately i cannot comment on that because i don't know what happened with you or but in that incident uh, the best person to contact is uh, prior strategic communications with the city of Toronto. oh that would be bruce hawkins he him uh, and bruce hawkins he him and in case we uh mistake bruce hawkins for a she her or a zzer folks he was actually part of a spying mission on us coming to Nathan Phillips Square to uh, cover the protests. So I don't think he's going to give us an answer. He was, uh, uh, like I said, spying on our activities. So I, again, I just wonder why journalists can't practice journalism on Nathan Phillips Square, and yet you can have basically people advocating hate speech gathering here. Again, I'm unable to comment to that, okay? Well, that was the disgraceful scene in downtown Toronto last Saturday, and the message is clear, isn't it? In Mayor John Tory's Hogtown, all protests are equal, but some protests, well, they're more equal than others. Translation, anti-lockdown demonstrators are verboten in Nathan Phillips Square, but 
a pro-Hamas demonstration? Well, <laughs> diversity is our strength, I guess. In any event, you had plenty to say about this odious double standard when it comes to freedom of speech and assembly. Jürgen Reichelt writes, Yet they are arresting peaceful pastors and treat them like animals. Tory and Trudeau destroying Canada as we know and love it. Hey, maybe you are on to something, Jürgen. Perhaps if these peaceful pastors wrap themselves in the flag of the Palestinian Authority and serve up a sermon full of anti-Semitism, they shall be left alone. Johnny Lawrence writes, guess COVID magically disappeared for this protest. Yes, Johnny, we've been told from day one the decisions made by our politicians and bureaucrats and public health officials are based on science. I wonder if they meant to say political science because that's not science at all. John T minus 20 minutes, Mercier writes, quote, those are my principles. If you don't like them, I have others, end quote, as noted by Groucho Marx. Gee, John, I thought you were perhaps quoting any number of politicians in Canada these days, from Premiers Ford and Kenny to Mayor Tory and Prime Minister Trudeau, horrible leaders who believe that principles like gender these days is fluid. And Brent Baker writes, I have police officer friends in the United States that I sent this to, and they're absolutely disgusted. Well, Brent, those are my kind of police officers. Well, that wraps up another edition of Rebel Roundup. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next week. And hey, folks, never forget, without risk, there can be no glory. Good night. <laughs>